0: This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnyTime.com. Welcome everybody. Uh, first and foremost, we want to welcome, uh, we we'll actually thank, you know, BJX, Torah Anytime, Chazak, uh, the Lighthouse, and Bedjuro for all combining to work on, uh, this, uh, you know, amazing project and, and all the classes that each organization, uh, does. Uh, just a FYI, there are three classes a week. With BJX, uh, with Rabbi Rachimi, myself, Rabbi Finger, and Rabbi Ben Chaviv. Uh, so if anybody who has any questions, any comments, anything that they would prefer the rabbi speak about or in the Q&A section, you can always email info at bjxcenter.com. So tonight we're learning for, uh, we have quite a few dedications. Uh, we have in, uh, memory of Devorah, Fega Bat Shmuel, and Menachem Mendel, Ben Elchanan. Also we have a Fawash Lema for Rachel bat Tziona Tehila, and for Tziona Tehila bat Yehudit, also for Lilun Ishmat ben Sarah, and to Lilun Ishmat Yecheskel ben Avraham and Avraham ben Chaim Yehuda. Okay, all right. Okay, so now let's get ready to uh, to get started over here. So the topic that we're we're going to try to uncover, uh, and the goal is to get to to like one point, and that point is. Did God mislead the other nations away from Sinai, away from getting the Torah? Now we know the story and we're going to go through it in more depth later, uh, but the, the idea was that God basically went to all the other nations and said, hey, do you want to keep this Torah? And they said, hey, what's written inside it? And then God said things that are very difficult for them to keep and they were like, no, we can't. So is that a misleading? Was that, how do we begin to understand that? Now, as usual, in order to understand it, we're going to go through the storyline, we're going to go through, you know, step by step and that really will paint a nice, beautiful picture of Be'ezlat Hashem to be able to, to understand why and how the Jews were deserving of what they uh, of what they were um, and what they received. So now, the you know previously we discussed that when God goes over. To Moshe Rabbeinu, it gives them a whole list of things to do. And God says, first you tell the woman, and then you tell the men. And when you tell the men, first you spoke to, well, first, before you speak to the regular men, you speak to the elders, to the, to the leaders. And when the Jewish people heard that, they like, like, wait a minute, why is Moshe Rabbeinu speaking to the leaders and not to us, the regular people as well? And they were like, maybe they're, maybe they're afraid, maybe Moshe Rabbeinu is afraid, that we're gonna answer inappropriately. So what they, like maybe the Moshe Rabbeinu says, here's what the Torah has, do you want it, or do you not? And Moshe Rabbeinu was afraid, maybe the Jewish people will go and answer it appropriately. So what the Jewish people, they did is that they preempted it. They went and they listened when the Moshe Rabbeinu explained it to the elders, and then before the elders were able to respond, they said, we'll do it. We'll keep it. So, what we see over here is that the Jewish nation were very, very eager to accept the the Torah. They really, they, they wanted it so much that they wanted to make sure whatever they could do, not to not to, uh, let's call it, mess it up if we can. So, when Moshe Rabbeinu goes and and tells them about the Torah. They unanimously, they together as one, said, "We will do it." And there was one, like. Section where they where they responded that Moshe Rabbeinu was like, "Ooh, how how do I go and deal with this?" And that was that the Jewish nation says, "Yeah, we'll accept the Torah, but we want to hear it directly from God. We understand this like messenger business, you know, like you go to God, God tells you, and then you know you come and you tell us, and we tell you, and then you go back to God, you know, like this back and forth. We want to cut out that middleman. Let's hear directly from from God. So this is the third day." from when they arrived to, uh, to the, in the area of Halsey Sinai, third day of the month. And Moshe Rabbeinu now takes this message from the Jewish people. The Jewish people says, we want to go and we want to hear God directly. Now, Moshe Rabbeinu now has to go back to God and say, hey, by the way, the Jews want to hear directly from you. But now God knows everything. So Moshe Rabbeinu is like, what should we do? Should, and, and do I need to go and speak to God? Be like, hey, by the way, they want to hear. God hears and sees everything. So Moshe follows the protocols of common courtesy and says, you know, I'm gonna go on and speak to God, just like a common, uh, you know, like a, like I'm dealing, you know, in a regular situation. And in mashallah, a parable is given that there was a king and this king went and he sent his, his messengers to a certain noble woman that he wanted to go and marry. And he goes to this, the, the messengers go to this woman and they say, hey, by the way, you know, the king wants to marry you. And she's like, what? Like, are you sure? Like, the king wants to marry me? I gotta know. Like, that sounds very far-fetched. Why would he want me? Out of, you know, like, all the other women that he could get. So, the, this, this, uh, um, woman says, you know what? If it's really true that he, wa- I wanna hear it from himself. I wanna hear it from his lips, the king's lips. I wanna hear it that he really wants to marry me. So the messengers were like, the audacity, the chutzpah that this person has, where are we supposed to go? We're we supposed to go back to the king, hey, by the way, you know, she's, uh, she doesn't believe us. So, the, they didn't, they didn't know what to do. They go back to the king, these messengers, and they, they all of a sudden started stuttering to the king. They were like, um, you know, kind of what they want to do is uh, the woman wants to hear it. No, they couldn't even bring it out the full sentence. So the king... You know, understood. He what's going on. He understood what's going on, and he says, "You know what? I understand what's going on. I understand that she wants to hear it. I'll tell her to her myself that I want to marry her." So the Jewish people also found their good fortune, like almost like too good to be true. Like really, like when it's too good to be true, you got to like start worrying. It. There's a Nigerian prince that wants to give me ten billion dollars and give me. You know, he'll only take ten percent. Like maybe I should start questioning something that's going on over here. So when it's too good to be true, the Jewish people were like, "If God really wants to give us the Torah, like we need to hear if I'm in." It's like. Crazy! It's like really too good to be true. So Moshe Rabbeinu goes over to God, and he was trying to find the right words, but God stopped him before he even started, before he even you know could get too far. And he says, "I understand what happened. I will honor the request, and they'll hear it directly from me." And if we just pause here for a second, this is there's a lesson that we can learn from here: is that sometimes people come to you and uh, they want to ask you something. And you could tell that they're uncomfortable with what they're asking. They could ask you for money. They could maybe be asking you for a device. And you know what's going on. You know what they really want. They know they want to ask you something. So what you should do is just like God went. Hashem went and he made Moshe Abinu feel like, you know, don't break your teeth over it. I understand what's going on over here. I'll take care of it. So, so too, if someone comes over to you and there's some sort of like, you know, situation they want to speak about and they, you could see that they're very uncomfortable, try to make them comfortable. Try to go and say, hey, by the way, you know, it's okay. Like whatever it's going you know, we'll deal with it. Try to put them in a comfortable situation. So when we're dealing with now, going back to the story, the the situation is changing, you know, drastically. Until where it was now. Until now, the Jewish people, how did they believe in Moshe Rabbeinu? Well, they saw the miracles, they saw the wonders, they saw the craziness that was going on. That Moshe Rabbeinu, you're talking about from the ten plagues, from getting out of Egypt, from the splitting of the sea, from the mountain. There's so many miracles, so much stuff, so many wonders that were happening that they were like, Okay, Moshe Rabbeinu is obviously a powerful man. He's got some sort of connection to the to, to something, something powerful. But such a type of faith is not absolute. It's based out of logic rather than experience. Now they could go and say oh, maybe Moshe Rabbeinu was a superior magician, and that's how he was able to go and accomplish all this. And even though the Egyptians themselves, which were the you know they got the PhDs in, uh, in you know in magic and sorcery, they were the greatest experts in this field, and they themselves said that this must be a finger of God because this cannot be magic, there's always someone, you're going to find some sort of stubborn Jew, right? (laughs) That always that stubborn Jew will be like, oh, I don't believe it. I don't care what the expert says. You know, everything here is some sort of conspiracy, whatever it is. You know, there's always that stubborn person that's not going to believe it. So, God wanted to remove any doubts that's going on over here. That Just by miracles alone doesn't mean anything. And in fact, we know miracles were done to many great sages. We have Rabbi Pinchas Ben-Yar, for example, had a river split for him. We know also Abraham, Khanania, and Vazia, they're all saved from the fiery furnace. We have many, many saints and sages that were, that miracles were done for them. And you should know not all of them were prophets. Having miracles done for you doesn't make you a prophet. In fact, that even in the non-Jewish world, there were open miracles. Miracles that were like very obvious miracles, not like your own personal miracle that a car stopped and just dodged you. Like not I'm talking about like a widespread miracle. And it could happen to other nations of the world, it could happen to leaders of the world. But it doesn't mean anything in the fact like, okay, now that a miracle happened, or even they made a miracle happen, it doesn't give them any power, it doesn't make them a prophet. And the Rambam, Maimonides, in Hilchot Hilchot Yisodeh HaTorah, goes and tells us that the Jewish nation believed in Moshe Rabbeinu until this point because of the miracles that he performed. Now... The miracles that Moshe Rabbeinu performed were not done as a proof. They weren't like, hey, you want to see how good I am? Pick a card, any card. You know, I'll tell you, it's going to be in your wallet. You know, uh, you know, it's in my mouth. He didn't perform magic tricks just to go and show them proof. Look, I'm a good magician. Look, I'm good at what I'm doing. If you realize all, if you think about it, all the, the miracles that happened were based out of necessity. had nothing to do with proof. It wasn't proving his prophecy. Moshe Rabbeinu wasn't proving himself when he was going and he was, you know, through his hand. There were so many miracles that were, that were happening. These were miracles that were done just based on necessity. They needed to cross the sea, so they had to split. They needed food, so the man came down. They needed this, they needed that, so things happened. So then why did they believe in Moshe Rabbeinu, says the Rambam? You know what's the main reason that we believe in Moshe Rabbeinu? Because we heard ourselves the sounds. We heard God say, Moshe, Moshe, go and tell the Jewish nation such and such. As it says in Devarim, chapter 5, verse 4. Panim bepanim, Hashem God spoke to you face to face. And what what the Rambam brings out over here is this is that we learn from here, the Pasuk says that they will believe in you forever. This implies when the Pasuk says that we believe in you forever, this means that until this point, they did not fully believe in, in an everlasting belief. There could have been doubts in the Jewish people. But after their prophecy, after this this miraculous prophecy happened, no doubt remained. The Kuzari brings out another uh, reason that that why you had the um, the Jewish people go and have to have that prophecy and hear God directly. When we think of the concept of prophecy, it's very, very hard to understand that God could communicate. There's many like questions that people, well, how could God speak? God is, is like beyond, you know, materialistic things. So there was many things that people, you know, we can't just comprehend. But once we go and we experience it, that removes any doubt from their heart. So when the Jewish nation and every Jew over there heard God, they were, they were on a level of a prophet. Every Jewish person, every Jewish man, child, woman, everybody there heard God at a level of a prophecy. Now, the idea that there was no intermediary, it was it was so imperative for, for you know, to the religion, the Jewish religion, is that, you know, th- there's always a worry that there's going to be some sort of deception. Maybe God really said X. Now the middleman came back and said, hey, by the way, and he gave them Y, Z, or any other information. How do we know, meaning that how do we know that what God told the messenger even though we know the message is such high how do we know it's true how do we know we, you know we could relate to it? how do we know that it's solid 100% exactly what god says so when you cut out the middleman that's it you hear everything there's no doubt anymore but there was even a more an, another an additional more important reason and that is that if another religion were to come up Let's just say that it could rhyme with uh, Shmissionary or, you know, you know, Islam or whatever it is, different religions that can come up and they could say, hey, by the way, God, you know, came up with a new religion. And you guys are old, or the, the Old you know, Testament. You guys, <laughs> yeah, it was right back then, but now it's the new day and age. Now we're talking about the new religion. This is the new one. So how are we going to know? That, how can we validate something like that? Or how can we invalidate it like that? It's very simple. The first time that God came to the picture and, and gave us the religion, gave us the Torah, what had happened? He went and he gave it to us and we heard it. The entire Jewish nation, every single man, woman, and child heard God. And if God were to go and to start contradict what he gave previously and he's going to start changing the laws and he's going to start changing the commandments, then wouldn't it make sense that God would do it the same way that he did it originally, which is in front of everybody, in front of the whole nation, if really there was a new religion, then God would call the entire nation, hey, by the way, guys we got to Etch-a-Sketch past religion we're going to do this is version 2.0 the beta version this is going to be we're going to try this one out and uh, um, we'll take this and we'll see how it goes and then God is going to come with another etch this you know what you know that Christianity wasn't you know it didn't make so much sense let's try Islam now let's try per- version You know 3 right now let's see where we're going to go you know from here now now how can we value, if, God, if that would be true then just do it the same way that was done the first time the first time was everybody because it was very very imperative that the entire Jewish nation go and hear God it's very imperative that every single one heard what God said. Everyone, everybody, you know, there was no doubt in anybody's mind. Now, the people that heard it were not the people. Were not only the people that were alive. You know, Meir Hashim tell us that also all the souls, every single soul, every single soul heard the. They were there present at Hazonai. They were there present. And they heard God speak to everybody, and they heard it was. It, it got it sort of engraved in their souls for all eternity, and. Now that there is going to be a, a, you know, the scenario where God is going to go and speak to every single person, now, everyone's going to hear it. There are certain preparations that God told Moshe Rabbeinu that the Jewish people have to do. Now, this is very, very important. Whenever we go into something, whenever you, you know, especially if it's something big, you got to prepare for it. You got to know. It's, let's say if we use the example of a wedding. Um, uh, you, when you go into a wedding, you need to prepare for the wedding. You have to learn, and that, that doesn't mean figuring out your makeup and your suit and uh, you know, like that's not the preparation that I'm talking about. You have to learn about marriage, to learn about what you need to do, how you need to speak, and how. You know, I have I have a student that gave such a kiddush, and I was so like, I take this ever since he told me this a while back ago. I've been pushing this on. I think it's a fabulous idea. This is a this is a guy that wanted to get married, and what did he do? So he wanted to get married. I said, you have to be ready to get married. And he took that. and He says, okay. He went and he purchased marriage books. He's not married yet. He's a single guy. He went and he purchased marriage books to go and start to figure in and understand. You know what? How am I supposed to deal with marriage? I know after I said this one time, a few girls came up to me like, so who is this guy? You know, like, maybe I should date him. Obviously, he cares so much about it. But you see something, if you care something about it, if you make special, pre- then you make special preparations for it. You understand what you're getting into. You start learning about it. You start studying it. You're going and you're starting opening a business. You're not going to just wing it. Then why is it marriage? People just wing it. Also with religion, you can't just wing it. And be like, yeah, let me just figure it out. No, we have to prepare. We have to understand. So, so too now, they're getting this this level of prophecy from God the Jewish nation needed to prepare. And even though there were still three days left for when God, when, when the Torah is going to be given on Hasinai, God told Moshe Rabbeinu start giving it. Moshe Rabbeinu gave the instruction in advance. Why? Because it's good to get accustomed to the pre- preparation. It's a good idea to realize that you have to start preparing. If you don't just prepare, hey, by the way, something huge is going to happen in like six minutes, so get ready for it. No. You're giving a Torah class, you got to prepare. You're giving a speech, you got to prepare. You're giving everything, you need preparation for it. So now, God tells Moshe Rabbeinu, and he says the first thing is is that the people are not allowed to approach the mountain. The mountain of Hasinai is going to be a level of holiness that no one's allowed to approach it. And the you know the idea is over here is that when you you know Moshe Rabbeinu, which was which was known to be the highest spiritual level, he could not approach the sna, the burning bush. So certainly the people cannot approach when God is descending on a certain area. God they, they can't go and approach approach that. And go, and and God gave detailed you know instructions on the restricted zone around the mountain and one one of the reasons war for this the man laws is, brings this down is that you know God tells, you know, you know, like, don't think that it's like a mortal king. You're going to see a president or some sort of star where how does how do people get in the front? The people have to push. They push to get a better view. God says it's not going to work that way. There is a restricted area and nobody needs to push. Nobody needs to get a better, uh, you know, a better view. So. The, what happened was, is that this mountain had a special status while God was there. And also for the few days before, prior to God going on the mountain, to descending on the mountain. But right after God left the mountain, the, the, after the Shekinah left the mountain, everybody was permitted to climb the, the mountain. You want to go to Mount Sinai? I wouldn't recommend it, um, because of the neighbors that they had. But if you want to go to Mount Sinai, right now it's not, there's no problem of, of, you know, of going there. The, the mountain after the Shekinah left is no longer, it's, it's just stone. There's nothing else. We, we learn from here also something very, very important and imperative. When you look at, you know, a person, a person just like the mountain is without essence unless God was descending upon it, so to a person, a person's body is without essence. What is what is this what is a person's body? It's the soul. And that's why if, you know we spoke about this, you know, quite a few times and when you see somebody pass away, you could tell that, you know, and I've been in that situation before where I've literally seen a person from being alive to being not alive anymore in, you know, in a period of a few minutes just staring at the person, you could see that there's something different about the body. The body looks exactly the same. The same nose, the same everything, and before then they were barely breathing. Their mouth was open, they were breathing very shallow breaths. They were barely breathing, and then they just stopped breathing. And you could see in that split moment that something is missing. And it's not the breathing, it's not the heart rate, there's something missing. And that's the essence of the person. The essence of the person is the person's soul. So going back, the next day, the following week, which is the fourth day, Hashem, God goes and summons Moshe Rabbeinu, and this time He... Tells Aaron, Nadav, and Abihu, which is Aaron's two children, his eldest sons, and the seventy elders of the Jewish nation to go and and come, you know, come as well. And they went in that in that order, in the rank order. Now, the reason why they went in that order, which was Moshe, then Aaron, then Nadav and Abihu, then the seventy elders, was because the way that it, God works is everything is measure for measure, midah keneged midah. When Moshe Rabbeinu went to the palace for the first time to Parol, so all the all the elders came along with him. But then all of a sudden, the elders saw like, you know, including also the common people as well. And as they got closer and closer to the, you know, the palace, people started checking out. They see all the guards. They see all the vicious animals that are protecting over there. They saw the Rottweilers and the pit bulls and the lions and the tigers and the bears. Oh, my. They saw they saw the, you know, the entourage, that power was going on. They were like, you know what? Um, Yeah. I just remembered that my microwave is on. Um, why don't you go and uh, you just let me know what happens, you know? And they just go back, and one by one, they all they all go back. So the first people that left were the common people. And afterwards, as they got closer and closer, also the 70 elders got a little bit nervous and they left as well. Until only Moshe, Moshe and Aaron and, and was the final ones that were standing. Midak Mida Agamidah, God goes over and says, just like that order, so too that is the order that the people are going to have in rank when they're coming closer to Hal Sinai, coming closer to the mountain. So... As they're walking, as the procession was passing through it, Nadav and Avihu, Aaron's children, goes, and they had a little bit of an inappropriate conversation. And they said, why do you think that we are signed third position? We have the Moshe, Aaron, and Nadav and Avihu. Why are we, we, they worked so hard in the spiritual achievements. And they said, you know, sometimes we wait for the two old men, the people in front of us, are referring to Moshe and Aaron. When are they going to move out to the higher world so that we consume the mantle of leadership? Now, even though they were on a very high level, spiritually they worked very hard, they obviously had some sort of lack of humility. And that led them far short from Moshe and Aaron. And Hashem responded that Aaron will actually outlive his two sons. That that this will obviously take place in the not too distant uh, future when they will pass away. Now, even though right now we know that Hashem granted their wish that they will be able to hear God in a prophecy. Besides the preparation that they need to do regarding the mountain, they also had to prepare themselves. There was a spiritual and a physical preparation that they had to do. The first thing that, the, the next thing that God said is that you have to sanctify yourself. Don't come close to your wife for, for, you know, from today and to tomorrow. It was a three day total that you have to stay away from, from the spouses, that, that, the you know, refrain from any relations. Also, they had to go and clean the, their clothing. And Rabbeinu Bachai goes and says that we derive from this that they also had to go and put, go into the mikvah. They had to go into, and go into a ritual, uh, bath. Now, while they're, you know, Cleansing their physical bodies, they also had to purify their souls, and that's meant through purifying the minds, uh, removing it from evil thoughts, uh, from improper thoughts, and also from refraining from work, being able to focus and concentrate only on Torah study, to strengthen their faith. And Moshe also added to them, and he said to the Jewish people, he says, it's worthwhile that before you get the to Torah, stay awake. Study for the entire night so that when you come, accept the Torah, you'll be fully awake. You're not gonna be rubbing your, you know, your, the sleep away from your eyes. So, after their preparations, the Moshabin also said that they're going to see a manifestation of the Shekinah and that there's something miraculous that's going to happen. That anybody who is blind, anybody who has any handicap, anybody who is lame is going to be completely healed. The, um, and they're going to reach a level that even the level of the greatest prophets didn't reach. Now this brings us on to the next day, the following day, which is the fifth day. And by the way, all this detail is very, very important for where we're going to go to the, the, the essence of this is did God trick the other nations? So we're going on the fifth day. And the morning of the fifth day, Moshe Rabbeinu went out. And uh, he went to the mountainside, there was a Mizbach over there. And he, he, and he erected twelve monuments, this corresponding to the twelve tribes. And he put them in very close configuration with each other, which symbolizes the unity and the harmony of the Jewish people. Now Moshe summoned the youth and so focused most uh, on, the, on the firstborn, on the Bechorim. On the firstborns, because at this point in time, the firstborns were the the priests. They were the ones that were going to go and perform the the priestly service until after after the Chet Ha'Egel, until the sin of the first of the golden calf. It went to the um, to the Shevet of Levi, which did not participate in the golden. But until until the golden calf. But until then, the firstborn Jews, they were the ones that were bring the sacrifice, and there was sacrifice that were given on that day. There were two sacrifices. One was a Olah, a burnt offering, and then there was a Shlamim, a peace offering. Now Moshe Rabbeinu goes after the sacrifice, and he divides the blood into 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 two separate but equally precisely equal parts. Uh, one of them, if Hashim, one of the commentaries go and explain that an angel came and divided the the blood of the sacrifice into two equal portions. Uh, one was not greater than the other, even by his slightest iota. Now, half of the blood he sprinkled onto the Mizbech, and he saved the second part to sprinkle on the Jewish people later, which we'll soon see. Now, the after Moshe Rabbeinu completed the sacrifice. He went and he reviewed the, some Torah subjects with the Jewish nation. He reviewed the Sheva mitzvahs b'nei noach, that's the seven noachide laws. He reviewed with, entire, with the Jewish people. He also reviewed the mitzvahs that were presented at Marah, which was Shabbat, honoring parents, civil and business law, uh, laws of Paradumah, the Red Heifer, with different laws that we spoke about over there. Then he also went and he read to them the brit, the covenants that he made with the, the not only the Jewish nation, the entire world at that point in time. For example, Noach, the brit of that there will never be a flood. The circumcision that which was the brit of the circumcision of of Abraham. The 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 covenant with Yitzhak and Yaakov. It spoke about the generation of the flood. Basically, from the from the time of the beginning of creation until uh, until until that day. Now also Moshe Rabbeinu went and he told them the blessings that they would receive as a reward for being faithful and keeping the Torah. And also, he gave them the curses that would be the consequences if they don't listen to the Torah. Now, one of the reasons is, this is an, it's a necessity, that unless somebody is aware of the punishment for violating the Torah, the people could not, they, they couldn't have been held liable. And according to the khaf a person is warned about to commit, he's about to commit a crime. So he has to be warned that it's a crime, and he also has to be warned of the punishment for the crime. So Moshe Rabinu also warned them. He said, this is the law, and this is the punishment if you violate the law. After Moshe finished teaching them the laws, what did the people respond? Naaseh, we will do it. And the prerequisite, like we said before, they all did it together as one. There was a prerequisite for giving the Torah. That even, listen to this fascinating thing, that even if one Jew, if one Jew would have objected, then God would have not given the Torah. After the reading was completed, Moshe Abenu took the the remaining half the blood that we spoke about earlier, and he sprinkled it sprinkled it on the on the people, and every person got at least one drop on them. It was through a uh, a miracle, an ace that it happened. Now we see over here. What was the purpose of all these things? The you know the you know the blood, the miracle, the, the ritual cleaning, and all these different things. If we look at it, the Mamlaws brings us down that. They went through a process of basically gil a conversion. They went to the Jewish nation went through a process of conversion. What happened? The men had been circumcised. where in Egypt. They had they had undergone tefillah. They went to the mikvah. They also went and now they offered a sacrifice. They basically went through exactly the same process as a gentile convert to Judaism. When the when the temple stood, a sacrifice was also required. Now we don't have the Bet Hamikdash, so there's no sacrifice that is uh, that is required. Now. Now let's get it to the, to the point that I actually wanted. That was basically all an introduction. Now, before the covenant, before the belief with the Jewish people was finalized, God went and He offered the Torah to the other nations of the world. Now a very famous question is like, well, how did He offer the other, you know, we never see in the history books that God came to, you know, to this nation and says, hey, by the way, do you want to accept the Torah? So how did God go and offer the Torah to the other nations? So the answer is, and this is something we spoke about previously, that God went and every nation has a sort of an angel that's responsible out of the entire nation. And God started off with the nation of Esav. These are the people of Edom. And uh, they, God goes over to the archangel and basically presents the information. It says, we want to give you know the Torah. Do you guys want to go and accept the Torah? So, they replied, well, <laughs> what's written inside the Torah? You gotta tell us. You gotta, you can't just like, give us a blanket thing, do we want to accept it? Tell us what's written in the Torah, maybe we'll take it, maybe we won't. Before you want to buy a product, you're not gonna go and say, hey, by the way, do you want to buy this product? And be like, well, what is it? What's inside it? What, what is it gonna do for me? So, God goes and says, uh, it says that, uh, you shall not kill. And, uh, you know, the, 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 immediately, the people of Adon, the they were like, whoa, 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 hold up a second. Don't kill? Like, come on, this is not for us. Our ancestor, Esav, received a blessing from Yitzchak. He says that God, Yitzchak gave him a blessing that what? That you should live by the sword. He says, we achieve our goals through bloodshed. <laughs> you know, that's the way that we do stuff around here. You know what I'm talking about? this. You know, like Tony's not listening. You know, we're going to smack him around a little bit. That's how we deal with stuff around over here. You're going to tell us we can't do this stuff? That's not for us. So, God goes, but well, wait a minute, but you're the firstborn nation. Esav is older than Yaakov. So, they, re- they responded, It's true, but we sold the birthright many years ago. Give it instead, give it to the descendants of Yaakov. Now, the, you know, the, the angel of Esav wasn't looking to be generous and be like, hey, by the way, you know, I appreciate it. I can't accept the position, but let me give you a referral to somewhere else. You know, Esav wasn't looking for some referral bonus that's, uh, you know, going to get some kickback on it. But rather Esav was going and he had a devious plan. And the plan was that if the Jews violate the Torah, then they will be destroyed, and that will make Esav and his nation more powerful. So God responded and be like, wait a minute, how do you know the Jewish people are going to go and accept it? I gave it to you, you want me to go, can you guarantee me that the Jewish people will go and accept it? So Esav, the, the angel of Esav goes and says, take some of my light, and offer it to the Jewish people as a little bribe, and then they will go and they will accept it. So Hashem said, fine. Hashem then goes to Amon and Moab, and he says, hey, by the way, I got a Torah, I got a precious gift, do you want it? Well, what's inside it? What you got? You know what's what's inside it. So God goes and says, uh, "It says that you're not supposed to commit adultery." They're like, "Whoa, adultery! I mean, like, come on, look what we're doing with over here! Like, you know, we're literally a product of illegitimacy. Like Lot, which is our ancestor, had his two daughters. That's how we came into being. You gotta tell us, you know, we can't. That's not for us. So then God went to the angel of Yishmael. And he says, do you want to accept the Torah? Again, the same thing. What's written inside it? And God says, it says that you should not steal. And they were like, wait a minute, you can't steal? How are we supposed to make a living? Like, this is our specialty. You know, like, we're, we're good at uh, getting money from other, from other people. In fact, the Torah says, is a peradam.' It's a wild animal. Uncontrollable in his relationship with other people. And uh, so, the Ishmaelim said, you know what? Give the Torah to the Jewish people. So God says, listen, you know, they're descendants of Yitzchak. But Yishmaelim, are descendant from his older brother Yishmael, you have first rights of the Torah. So Ishmael says, no, no, don't worry about it. We, we pass it up, give it to them. So God says, ah, you, you know, can you guarantee me that they're going to take it? Who says they're going to take it? So again the angel of Ishmael says, Take some of my light that I inherited, go and give it to them as a part of a bride that they will go and accept it. And we see over here both the angels, specifically the angels of Esau and Ishmael, gave a spiritual light to the Jewish people as sort of to go and accept it and take the so that they would be able to go and sort of broaden and they should take the Torah. But now, we have to stop a second thing. Like, the answers from Esav and Ishmael are very difficult to understand. And even from Amonimov, um, I'm what God told them is part of the seven Noahide laws. Do not murder, do not steal is part of the seven Noahide laws. It's the universal commandments that they had to keep anyway. So why is it they're like, oh, by the way, no, this is too hard. Be like, you have to do this anyway. It's like, imagine someone coming over to you and be like, hey, I want to start a business with you, but I have one criteria. We got to be legal. We got to pay taxes. And the guy says, no, you know, like, I'll do anything, but not that. Like, you have to do that anyway. Like, whether you do it with me or not, you have to do it. So what was the, the point of going and saying commandments that they had to anyways keep since the time of Noah, since the time of Adam, in fact? Why did they, what was this, what was the purpose for this? So, we see over here that, uh, before we actually go and we answer that question, the, God went and he told every single nation, even though we just mentioned a handful, it went to every single nation, and when one nation realized that it would damage their lifestyle, they they said, you know what, like, you know, we don't want this. We don't want this. We're not interested in this. But then, the nations of the world argued, and said, wait a minute, just because the Jewish people get the Torah, they accept the Torah, does that mean that they're better than us? How do you know? Maybe they're going to fail at it. Who's going to testify that they actually lived by the laws that they were required to live? So God says, I'm going to testify. (laughs) <laughs> so they were Jewish the nations were like really god, you're like you consider them the firstborn ben you consider them their firstborn you're going to testify can a father testify for a child so god says okay the heavens and the earth will testify and the other nations were like no 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 no. If there's nobody that accepts the Torah, we know the laws. We know how the 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 world was created on the condition that the, somebody would go and accept the Torah. And if nobody would accept the Torah, then the nation would then the world would cease to exist. So the heavens and the earth they need somebody to accept the Torah. So of course they'll give the upper hand to the Jewish people because they're the only ones that accept the Torah. So God says, "You know what? you're going to be the ones. You yourself, the nations of the world are going to be the ones that are going to testify on behalf of the Jewish people. Nimrod will testify in the faithfulness of Abraham. Lavan will go and testify about the faithfulness of Yaakov. Potiphar's wife will go and testify in Yosef and so on and so forth. Every non-Jew would go and testify throughout history. Look at how I, I had a business partner. And my business partner was Jewish. Oh, so look at the... Look at, the look, look at how honest they were. Look at how good they were. Each and every single non-Jew will go and testify for the Jewish people. Now, we have to go and understand something very, very important. That, let me start off with this this, this concept of the mashal, of the parable. There was once a very, very wealthy doctor. And this doctor invented a medicine that would cure all illnesses. Like a one and all Like a one and all without any microchips inside there, right? I don't know if anybody's up in the news what's going on. There is a pure medicine, you know, and, and that would cure every, every... um every every illness out there like a one pill does everything and he was very very wealthy and he was about to die and he had a young child and he wanted his child to go and get his most prized possession and that's this valuable drug that he just invented and he wasn't able to bring it out to the world yet so he was nervous that his servants would go and they would take everything they'll take his money his son was too little he couldn't you know you know deal with any of this stuff and and everybody else will probably cheat him out of it so the doctor goes and thinks of a plan and he goes over and he calls over all the, uh, all the servants. And he says, each one of you are being super faithful for me and he gave them a huge inheritance. And he says, I'm leaving to my son one thing, this miracle drug that I created. And they were like, ooh, miracle drug, tell us more. Yes, what, it's, what is in this miracle drug? And he goes and says, this is a drug that can heal anything. And they were like, okay, this, you know, piqued their interest. And what the doctor did is that he took this drug and he put it inside with the formula and everything inside and he covered the mouth of the drug with some, the most smelliest, disgusting odor possible. And he was sitting there lying and he's like, yeah, here's the drug. And he was like, you know passing in and out, and the servants go, and they're like, listen, this is his most prized possession. Forget about the money. This is what we need. This is going to make us wealthy. This is going to make us powerful. And they go, and they open it, and they take one whiff in it. They almost pass out. It smelled like, you know, barf was combined with who knows what else. And they were like, they were gagging. They were like, okay, you know, let's put this back. We'll split the money, like the doctor said. Let's it. let give this to the son. The doctor is obviously, you know, losing his marbles over there, and this is what he thinks is going to heal everybody. So, he goes, and 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 he gets his child that you know, that pure miracle drug. Now, God goes, and He knew that the nations of the world, if they would appreciate the deep secrets of the Torah, then of course they would have gone and they would have accepted it. And of course they would have done it. So the question is, now, if they really would have accepted it, why did God, did God trick the nations and say, hey, by the way, just like God, you know, th- this doctor put some smelly odor on top of this, uh, uh, you know, bottle, and he says, here, give this to, uh, to my son, this is gonna be the biggest thing. And they were like, okay, this is obviously nothing, we're not interested in this. Maybe God also, he took the Torah, sprinkled something that he knew people would not take, We knew people would not accept, he says, here, now you go and now you accept, uh, you accept the Torah. And what happened that they, when they, when they heard, the nations heard, oh, you're not allowed to kill, you're not allowed to commit adultery, you're not allowed to steal, It'd be like, you know what, give the Torah to the, to, you know, to the Jewish people. We're not interested in it. So how do we understand this? There was once a king. And a king appointed a guard to stand and watch over his straw. And then he took another guard, and he went and he gave them to watch over the gold and silver. And each guard went and stood in his section and guard, one guarded the straw, and one guarded the gold and silver and the precious jewels. The guard in charge of the straw, he was negligent. You know, he was being lazy, he wasn't interested. And before he knew it, all the straw was stolen. And when the king heard this, the king goes over to him He says, I I gave you one job. The job was watch over this straw. And you went and you couldn't even do that. And they say, the, the servant goes, this watchman goes and says, hey, wait a minute. You know, I was upset at you. That's why I wasn't watching it. So the king says, you're upset at me. Why are you upset at me? He says, you know, I'm on a very high level. I could watch very well. He says, why did you give me the straw and you gave the other person to watch the gold? I should have been watching the gold. So the king goes, you fool, <laughs> you're such, are you serious? If you can't watch straw, how could you watch gold? So many people would want to go and attack, grab the gold. If you can't watch the most simplest, basic straw, you think I would be able to trust you with, with, uh, you know, with the gold? God goes over to the, to all the nations. He says, I told you the basics of the basics. I told you things that you had to keep already. The Shevah mitzvahs Ben-Anach, the things that don't steal, don't murder, the basic stuff. And you're going to be upset that I told, maybe there's deep secrets inside over there? If you can't keep the basics, how can you even keep the deep secrets? How can you even understand it? Just like this servant couldn't even watch over the straw, certainly, Kalav certainly he would not be able to go and watch the gold. God tells the nation, you think I tricked you? if you couldn't do the most basic thing as don't murder somebody. You couldn't do that. You think you'd be able to go and watch over and speak in Lashon huh? You think you'd be able to go and do all the halachot? He says, I was, I was testing you. You obviously weren't on that level to, you know, to be able to go and accept it. Now, we answer the basic understanding that we see over here that did God really trick the, Jew, the, you know, the, the other nations? Absolutely not. He gave them the easiest one. In fact, he went the opposite. He says, "Hey, by the way, do this, and if you do this, then let's see if you're going to be able to, to you know, to take on the rest." Asks Rabbi Matasiau Solomon, a fascinating question. God gave the the option for all the other nations of the world, and every single nation says, "Wait a minute! Before we go and we're going to sign ourselves to something, we got to know what we're dealing with." Just like before, a person gets married, they go on dates to see what they're going to end up dealing with. What's the situation that's going to happen over here? So. The nation go and they went and they asked God what's inside over here and God told them each and every single one of them a certain thing that they uh, you know couldn't obviously handle so asks Rabbi Mattis Yahu Solomon, a question what gave the Jewish people a right in neglecting to ask God what's written in the Torah the Jewish people didn't ask well you know what's in the Torah what did the Jewish people say? Nah seven ishma. God says, you want to take the Torah? Yeah, we'll do it and we'll hear it afterwards. Like, meaning that they were so interested in doing it, they didn't even matter what it said inside. We'll take it. We'll just buy it. Yeah, give us two. It. It's free. Give us two. You know, like, you know, we'll take it. Why? And how did the Jewish people have the audacity, the ability to go and take something that they never asked for it? Did you ever ask yourself this question? Why did the Jewish people ask what's inside it? Just like all the nations. What if God would have told them, hey, by the way, you know, uh, you can't go and you can't work on Shabbat. What if you would say, Hey, by the way, you can't speak Lashana? Would they would have accepted the Torah so blindly you know blindly? There was obviously something that the Jewish people knew that the other people didn't take it to heart. And what was it? What was the secret of seven Ishma? What was the secret of saying, Yeah, we'll do it before we even hear it? Now the Jewish people know full well the requirements, if we could call it restrictions that the Torah would, would give to them. And they knew that it would be impossible to do it, because there's a lot of restrictions. However, they knew something else. They knew something very, very important, that the Torah itself has such a spiritual power that it could transform them from doing something that's impossible to not something that not only becomes possible, but it becomes your way of life. The Jewish people realized that the power of the Torah, they knew there was a lot of stuff in there. They knew that it was going to be difficult, it's not going to be easy, it's not going to be, you know, that other nations do whatever they want. They knew that they would have restrictions, but they also knew the spiritual power that comes with the Torah. And they knew that with the Torah, you had the ability to do even the impossible. Now, the concept over here is we have to understand, is at, even though they knew the power, you look at it, but like at the same point in time, they're deriving themselves of pleasures. The nations of the world have unbridled stuff that they could, they could do whatever they, with the, with the, with the limit to seven Noachai laws, they could do whatever they want. They could marry, they could, they don't even have to get married. They could go with whoever they want, they could eat whatever they want, they decide they want to eat bats in the womb, whatever it is, as long as it's not ever Minachai, they could do whatever it is that they want to do. Why would the Jewish people go and deride themselves of the pleasure of the world? The, God went and created the world. And in the world there's tremendous amount of pleasure. So for, we have to ask two questions over here. One, why would the Jews go and derive themselves from this, from this, uh, you know, from this pleasure? And number two, why would they go and, why would God go and want them to be derived of this pleasure? If there was a pleasure, then shouldn't the Jewish people get it? God created the world. So, the, Reality is that there's two levels of pleasures. There is a low pleasure and there's a high level. Let's call it a low level and a high level of pleasure. Uh, the high level of pleasure is a pleasure that, that interacts with the intellect, with the spirit, with the, the artistic sensibilities, with honor, with dignity. There's different aspects that a higher pleasure goes. And I'll give you an example. like This This is the way that Reb M. Uh, Seol goes and explains it. Let's say a person was drinking beer, smoking a cigarette, and playing a video game. And all of a sudden... He has a chance to meet the president of the United States, one of the most powerful people on the the earth. If you don't like the president, then pick whoever you want to fancy, right? Uh, Kim Jong, whatever, North Korea, right? Whatever it is that you decide you want, right? You could go meet Vladimir Putin, right? You could meet whatever you want, one-on-one, right? Vladimir is in the middle of hunting beers with his beer hands, and he wants you to go with him. Would you go and be like, hey, listen, I'm middle of, you know, playing game, uh, whatever games people play now, right? You know, I don't know. I can't even, uh, whatever it is, right? In the middle of playing a game and, and be like, I'm smoking a cigarette. I'm playing a beer. Like, uh, meet with a present. Like, uh, I'm not interested right now. Like, no, you, like, no, pe- people, someone in the right mind, would they would not be like, no, no, like, I, no, I'm not interested. You know, they would go. They would put down the video game. They would take out the cigarette, put down the beer, and they would go and take, get out of their jeans, get out of their cotton sweatpants, and put on a suit, get their best thing, get a professional haircut, get, you know, whatever it is, they're gonna get, they're gonna get ready. Oh, they're gonna get ready. Now, when they go to the president, and they're sitting there in a suit, and a tie that's choking them, and their vein is bobbing out of their neck, are they going to be like, well, I can't believe I'm over here right now. I'm in this suit over here. I could have been playing video games at home. Are they going to feel restricted? Are they going to feel restrained that I can't have a pleasure? Of course not. Why? Because they're able to experience something over here that's a higher level of pleasure than something that they were experiencing at their house. Now, what happens if they meet the president or Putin right? and the Kremlin goes and offers them a very high position staff in the White House? Ah, uh, you saw what I did over there, right? The Kremlin offers them high position, whatever. Okay, so the um they offer they get offered a high position with the with the president, with the king, whatever it is. Now, every day they have to wake up early, and every day they have to wear a suit, and every day they have to do X, Y, and Z. Are they gonna go and be like, well, <laughs> listen, I could sit and play video games in my house. Like, why would I go and give up all my pleasure that I have? I could do whatever it is that I want. Why would I give it up to work so hard for the president of the United States? Why would I do that? And the answer is. Is that there are two levels of pleasure. There's a lower level of pleasure that's playing video games, smoking a cigarette or whatever and drinking a beer. There's a higher level of pleasure. And that is, you know, being involved with working with one of the most powerful people in the world. Being involved in decisions that are going to change millions if not billions of people's lives. The more one experiences the higher pleasure, the less one wallows and desires the lower pleasure. Think of, it, you know, the people, in, if anybody has been to England, one of the most famous, you know, tourist sites is you go to Buckingham Palace. And um, when you go to, I don't know if I should say this story, that, you know, everybody goes and tries to go and make the, them laugh. So I have a story like that as well, but we shouldn't do that because, uh, you know, hopefully people would, uh, you know, what, let's stop the story right there. Anyways, you have people that go to Buckingham Palace, right, and they try to make people laugh. You ever seen those? Uh, you know, you ever think, you seen those things? Um, and uh, so some people get hit in the head with a rifle, um, and other people, you know, it's just like a funny little thing. But you look at that; the guards are standing over there. It looks like they got dressed up and some sort of wacky costume. They're sitting there with this like red coat and they're sitting there with this, like bearskin hat that's about who knows how tall. You talk about a strimo like on the top of a strimo like a level of, you know, it's hot, and it's hot over there with a strap on your chin that they have to like technically balance over there. They're sitting over there at one spot and they cannot move. And in fact it gets so hot in the summer under all their clothing that some of them faint. And they, when they faint, they wait on the floor until they have enough strength and they get up again and they stand again and they stand and they protect them. And there's all the changing of the guards and everyone goes and watches how pe- you know guards move back and forth and it's fascinating, whatever it is. So you go over there and you think, why would anybody in their right mind be like, you know, there's an ad out going over there. Hey, by the way, uh, do you want to be a guard at Buckingham Palace where you will stand motionally for hours while tourists will take pictures with you and will try to make you laugh and you will sweat and you will possibly pass out? Anybody join? Wanna join? And so many people wanna go and wanna be a guard in Buckingham Palace. Why? Because it's a kavod, it's an honor. You're guarding the Queen of England. People that, you know, go for the Queen, you know, like, oh, you know, it's, 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 it's a, it's a, it's a level, it's an honor. People will go and they will take off their regular pleasures or whatever it is that they have and they will go and they'll stand motionless for hours. Why? Because I'm doing something for the King. It's part of a bigger picture and they enjoy it. It's part of what they want. And it's something very interesting. Speaking about, you know, the Queen of England, have you ever noticed the Queen of England, or better you shouldn't notice, uh, that never wears pants. Always wears a skirt. Why not? And in fact, I read an article a while back that there was only a handful of times that people ever saw the Queen with, with pants. Why not? Why, why, why wouldn't she wear pants? It's more comfortable apparently. Why all the non-Jews are wearing pants? The answer is because she's royalty. And royalty dresses a certain way. Ro- royalty, you'll never see them, you know, dressing in a certain way. She, she goes and she re- presents herself in a way that royalty goes and presents herself. It's beneath her dignity to go and dress any other way. When God sent Moshe the Torah to offer to the Jewish people, it says in Exodus chapter 19, verse 56, God kadosh. You're gonna be a kingdom of priests for me. You're gonna be a holy nation. You're gonna be royalty. When the Jewish people accepted the Torah, they became royalty. They rose above everybody else. They came they have a close relationship with the God, with the king of kings. And this is what we read every Shavuot. When we get to the Torah, we read the story of Ruth. Look at the story of Ruth. What does it say over there? The daughter, she was the, she was the daughter of the king of Moab. She married a Jewish person, a Jewish aristocrat, had money back then. And her husband died in poverty. And her brother-in-law also died. And her mother-in-law said, Listen, there's nothing to do for me and Moab over here anymore. And she went back to Israel. Ruth could have have easily said, Hey, by the way, nice knowing you, mother-in-law. I'm going to go back to my father who was the king. And go back to living in royalty. But instead she didn't. She decided that she's going to accompany her penniless mother-in-law and go live in a Jewish society. You know what Ruth told in chapter 1 verse 16 in Ruth? It says that your people are my people and your God is my God why? Naomi and Ruth went and they walked barefoot from Moab to Israel. Barefoot from a this is a princess where she could have gone to her palace and get pampered for the rest of her life. Why didn't she go back? And the answer is it didn't help any attraction to her. She wanted to be part of God's nation. She had a level of pleasure that's much higher than the level of pleasure that she received in her palace. She sent it and she tapped into that. And she saw the true pleasure, the true happiness. And in the merit of this, she became the, the great courage that she had. She became the ancestor of King David, of David HaMelech. Now, each and every single one of us were, were princes and princesses of a holy nation. God went and he honored us by giving us the holy Torah. Every mitzvah that we do, every good commandment, every word of Torah that we study, brings us closer to Him. But says to Yisrael Solomon, we can only go and experience this pleasure if we recognize the divine privilege that we join, that, that we have. That we're truly delighted when we go and you make that blessing, Asher banu amim, that God chose us from all the nations. And God gave us the Torah. If, however, says to Yisrael Solomon, if we don't go and recognize the Torah for what it is, if we don't value our relationship with God, If we do not view ourselves as part of the royal entourage, then yes, surely we'll feel burdened and restricted. But if we go and we could appreciate the level, the importance, the pleasure of what Judaism beholds, then none of the other pleasures are going to hold even a a candle next to it. We go and if we realize, if we tap into that higher level of pleasure, nothing else is going to make it feel that good. Think about it for yourself. When was the last time you did something really good? When was the last time you learned something really concentrated? Maybe you listened to a class and you were super inspired and you learned that you were on a high level. Maybe you did an act of chesed. Maybe you did something and you felt so good inside. Think about any other pleasure that you had. It's such a different pleasure. And if you really tap into it, if you're true to yourself, the real pleasure, the real pleasure is that spiritual connection to God. And this is why I say again and again, one of my most, in my opinion, this is my opinion, one of the most important things is the vekut to God. Is that connection to God. Is to realize there are many people that, that go through the Torah process. They go, they, they, they go to minyan, they do everything, but it's like sort of by rote. They don't do it by thinking about it. And then you look at those people, and I've dealt with quite a handful of them, that let's say they decide religion is not for them and they go off. And they're not interested in it. If those people would go and and get that true connection, yes, if you're just doing the actions, if you're just you know praying and then every few seconds you do whatever it is that you need to do and you take it three steps back, then you know what? Yeah, it's not going to be pleasurable for you. It's, it's going to be a burden. But if you connect into it, if you tap into it, There is no way, there is no way that someone can leave out of that. That's why you look at all the greatest rabbis. The greatest rabbis, you want to know what their pleasure was? They were learning to all all the time. You want to know why? Because they were addicted to it. They couldn't do anything other than than connect to God. They couldn't. Why? Because they were real. They went and they connected to God in a way that we could only dream of and we could only go and try to reach. Now this is what Rabbi M. Solomon is going to explain. If you go, and if you tap into this spirituality, if you go and you really become, if you really go and connect to the Torah, if you really go and you connect to God when you pray, you, you feel it, you're there, you're connected, you're one, there is no pleasure in the world that will even come close to that type of pleasure. And for those who are listening or are watching that have ever attained that, you could know what I'm saying. And it, does, it could happen even a brief moment. Where you went and you did something so amazing that you felt so good. And it put everything else that you have ever had to shame. You want to really connect? That's the dvikut. That's where you really have to connect. It's not enough just to, to go through the motions. It's not enough just to come to classes and, you know, sit back over there and listen to whatever it is that you It's great. If you're doing it, that's great. But take it up a notch. Connect to it. Feel it. Whenever you're doing something, you could do something you can do something 100%. Put everything into it. And this is, by the way, a lesson that you should take at anything in life. Whatever you do, I say this again and again, always put your 100 into it. You want to be successful in life? Put everything that you got into whatever it is that you're doing. Put everything. Don't do it halfway while doing half this and half that. Focus. Focus and connect to whatever it is that you're doing. When God went and gave the Torah to the Jewish nation, you know what the response was? We will do, and we will listen. They said we will do before they will. They said we will listen. Want to you know why? Because the motives are so pure. They were so connected, and they said, "You know what, God? We want to be a part of you. We want to be connected to you. It doesn't matter what's inside of it. Whatever you give us, we'll take because we know that you love us and you care for us. And if you're giving us something, then we want part of that because we want to be part of you." We know that the main thing is action, is doing. as That it's taught in the the Torah. The main thing is not just the study. The main thing is the observant of the Torah. Someone that studies Torah all day but doesn't keep any of the commandments, his his Torah studies of little value. You look at people that, let's say, the reform movement or conservative rabbis, you know, that they go and they study and they study and they study, they know a lot of Torah, but what is the help for them if they don't keep the Torah? You have people that go and they learn with no intent whatsoever of keeping it. Those people don't connect. They don't connect to the Torah. It's, it's something that's intellectual. They're learning math. They're learning science. They're learning who knows what. When the first time that Moshe Rabinu went and it spoke to the, to, the, to the Jewish people, what did they say? They went and they said, we will do it. We will take it. Now seven ishma." Now, why did they go? And it's interesting to think about it. Why did the Jewish nation go? Originally, the Jewish nation's resp- reply was, everything that God says we will do. And then they switched it, that we will do and we will listen. Now, seven ishma. Why did they switch it? So originally, when they say all that God said we will do, when Moshe was speaking to them, they realized that there was two ways to interpret it. Number one, there's a way that there's no question. Everything that God says we will do. Everything that you didn't tell us, we will do. But there's also, also a way to interpret it negatively. And that is, that maybe the Jewish people did not have great faith in Moshe Rabbeinu. And they told him, yeah, all that God said we will do. But how do you know that we how do we know that you're telling us what God says? Maybe God's saying something else. So when Moshe binnu went up and God and told God what the Jewish people wanted, and then God went and said, "Hey, by the way, the Jewish nation, you are going to go, and you're going to tell the Jewish nation that they're going to hear it from my mouth." And what did they, how did God go and finish that the pasuk over there in Shemot chapter 19, verse nine? What did what did God tell Moshe Rabbeinu And now also they will believe in you forever. They will know that you're a true prophet when the Jewish nation heard of it. But wait a minute, why did God add that now they will know that you're a true prophet? Was well, maybe were well, they were concerned that. Uh, Maybe God, maybe Moshe Rabbeinu, not God, misinterpreted the, their intention. Maybe he thought it was a second way. Which means is is that maybe when the, when Moshe Rabbeinu went and told the Jewish nation, "Hey, you want this?" and said everything that God says we will do, maybe he thought that he, they don't trust him. They want to go around it, so they they switched it and they switched to the second. They wanted to clarify. It says, "No, no, no. We don't have any problem with Moshe Rabbeinu. We said any. they removed any doubt." And how do they do that? They said, "Not nah, seven ishma. Anything that God says, that we will do, and we will hear. Whether we hear it from you, whether we will hear from Him, doesn't matter. We believe. We also believe in you forever. So this sort of clarified of what they were, um, what they were trying to go and and to uh, and to portray. Now the midrash in Ruth goes and says, until this point, the Jewish nation used to be known, just like all the other nations were known, and only now, and they said, "Not nah, seven They were known as my nation, Amid, God's nation. Why? Because of that sentence that they said. sevenishma. There were so many layers of what we don't have the time to go and speak about all the details of what Na Ishma. but in the simplest interpretation, Na said we will do also the positive commandment and we'll refrain from also the negative uh, transgressions that that will come with the Twa. But with all this amazing you know, things that, that came from, you know, the angels, the heavenly voices, who revealed the Jewish people the secret? The secret that only a level of angels can do to someone to go and say, hey, by the way, whatever it is that you'll say, I will do. That's a level of devotion. How did they get to that? How did they get, like, only an extraordinary servant is going to be able to go and prepare to do anything his master wishes. How did the Jewish nation go and connect to them? We see over here how they were connected to God, that no matter what, they were willing to get on a level that doesn't matter what happens. Doesn't matter what God says, we'll take it. They reached a higher level of Hasinai. And this is, on Hasinai, at least for the time being, they overcame the evil inclination. They even, they stood higher at angels at that point in time. And angels, there were 600,000 ministering angels that came down, each holding two crowns. One for Naaseh an and one for Nishmah. They, they went for the positive commandments, one for the negative commandments. They went and they got it. They also went and there was another 600,000 angels that came down and gave a spiritual armor on the Jewish people. This protected them from illness, suffering from the angel of death. At this point in time, the Jewish people reached such a high level that they were, they were gonna live forever. It was only after they went and they did the sin of the golden calf, the Chatta Egel, is when everything was removed. From from all the powers that they that they that they achieved, and when Mashiach comes, Sham, that will go and uh, and and it will come back. That, that you know those those gifts. But there was uh, there was additional gifts that they that they received just from saying the Asav and and that is another three things. The Midrash says that they got the El Israel, Mashiach, and Olam Haba by saying the Asav and Ishma. has such such a power, such. Such a power that not only that, until now the Jewish nation was subject to mazal, to the astrological forces. Whatever the destiny was, was based on your astrological sign, whether for good or bad. But when the Jewish people stood on Har they were no longer being the subject of astrological forces like they were before. And not only that, until this point in time, the Jewish nation were known as Hebrews. As it says that Moshe Rabbeinu, when he goes to Parol, it says, The God of what? The Hebrews... The Hebrews sent me, but when the Torah was given to the Jewish, the Jewish nation went from becoming the Hebrews to becoming B'nai Ami, becoming my nation, becoming B'nai Israel, the Jewish nation. Now where did all this stem from? This stem from what? From the Na'ana, seven Ishmael. We will do whatever it is. We don't question God. Let's look at the question that we started off and we'll finished off with this as a summary. the God goes over to all the other nations. And all the other nations says, what's inside of it? And they didn't, you know, God says, oh, it's this, X, Y, and Z, whatever was difficult then. He says, no, it's not for us, go give it to somebody else. When God goes over to the Jewish nation, He says, do you want to accept the Torah? You know what they said? They said, nah, seven Ishma." we don't even want to know what's inside, we'll take it. They were so connected, they were so devoted, it doesn't matter what's inside of it. We want it. We want to be connected to you, God. We want to be connected. You want to know the true avodat Hashem. You want to know the true service of God. You want to be truly satisfied in your life and connected to religion. You want to be connected to God. Don't do things just by road. Connect with. The next time you make a blessing, you think about this. You think about what you're about to go and drink and then you go and you drink it and you make that blessing and drink it. You make a You do. You connect with. Stop for a second. Every time you do something good, and think, just like connect to that. Connect to what you're about to do and like feel it. Don't just do it just because you have to do it. Stop. Oh, you're going to feel such a difference. The more that you connect to it, the more that you will feel it. The more that you feel it, the more you'll tap into that that pleasure that our great sages are connected to, that our great rabbis, even in our generation, they can't stop learning. They can't stop learning because it's so awesome. They can't stop doing to all of because they, the pleasure is unbearable. The wor- their olam haba is in this world also they enjoy this world so much because of the, of the beauty of the Torah that they have you have many people that says, oh yeah I was religious you, people that were religious were really religious rarely ever go off I can't say speak to everybody you want to know why because once you tap into that it's a drug you can't do anything else other than that so no God didn't trick the other nations God was saying asking them something fundamental says you want to accept the Torah it's not enough to ask what's inside of it you gotta be fully devoted into it. You gotta be fully devoted like the Jewish nation was. That's how you go and you accept the Torah. If you're interested in going and saying, oh, is it gonna work for me now? Maybe I'll do it. Those type of people don't go big into things. If somebody goes and wants to get married, well, it's gonna be restricted. You know, his wife is gonna want him here. His husband is gonna want him to do this. And X, Y, and Z. If somebody's gonna wanna open up business, they're gonna have to wake up early. They're gonna have to go and do this. And they have to do so much things. They're not interested in all the restrictions. If you tap into the higher pleasures, you're not interested in the low pleasures. So my blessing that I give to each and every single one of us is that may we tap into the true beauty of the Torah. May we go and may we really connect to that. we really see that true beauty of what Naseh seven Ishmael really means. Being connected to God in such a way that all we want to do is be connected. That's all we care about. Once we get that, life is set. We'll open up for some questions. Why do so many Jews live a robotic life? And doesn't it say by the end of days there will be a hunger not for bread but for Torah. So in times of starvation, you just eat anything. Isn't there isn't the rabbis responsible that we should feel the taste? Okay, so there's there's a there's a few questions over here. Number one is why do people live a robotic life? The answer is not dependent on anything else other than the person themselves. If somebody wants to go And live a fulfilling life. It doesn't matter on anybody else other than you. If you want to go and you want to connect to the Torah, you can't say, well, you know, my rabbis didn't go and teach me in this, in this matter. When you want something, you have to do, at the end, at the end of every single idea, it's all based on you. You want to be successful? You could go to the best business school. You could go to the best law school, medical school. But if you don't go and apply for a job to be a doctor, you won't be able to go and be a doctor. You have to do, at the end of the day, if you wanna, if you, even if you scored the top of your class in law school or medical school, but if you don't practice law with, you know, with, well, while, you know, in the right mindset and focusing on what you need to do, then you won't be the best lawyer, you won't be the best doctor, you won't be the best, at the end of the day, no matter how much knowledge you have, it all depends on us. It depends on nobody else other than us. Everything that we want to weigh, the way that we want to live our life depends on how we decide we're going to live it. So it's not the rabbis who need to go and say, hey, by the way, do this and do that. It's all written in the Torah what they have to do. What every single one of us, know, we, it's all written in the Torah. The rabbis can guide us, but at the end of the day, the success of what you're going to be and how you're going to be connected all depends on you. It all depends on how you connect and how you do. And this has with everything, even with marriage. You want to make your marriage successful? Don't blame it on your parents. Don't blame it on your teachers. Don't blame it on this is why I am this way. You want to be successful in marriage, work on it. You, you yourself, work on it and focus on it. When you do that, you'll be able to go and be successful. The problem is, is that a lot of people like to put the blame on other in other areas. And we shouldn't. If we want to do, we want to go. If we want to be successful. We have to focus on ourselves and do what we need to. Okay, next question um is... I don't know what that question is. We're each accountable for our actions. Oh, that's not a question. Okay, yes. Um, why? Okay, next question is, why is it so difficult to connect when trying to learn? So that is, it depends on the person. Why is it difficult to connect? And the answer is, it's very difficult to connect nowadays. Um, one of the reasons is that we're, we're connected to so many other things that it's hard, and that 's why there was a while back and it really you know it really should be always that there was a campaign going on uh, disconnect to connect yeah i don't know if you guys remember what i 'm talking about where it's disconnect from your cell phones in order to connect to reality um, so one of the one of the reasons where I feel where a person could go and focus on how to connect to things is to, is why, the way that I said it before is focus fully on it. If you're going and you're, let's say, learning a class or you're listening to a class or whatever it is and you're playing a game, let's say, on your phone, then it's going to be very, very difficult for you to connect to that class because you're not really fully there. So when you try to go and fully focus on it, it's, there's a different level of connection. I also tell this to people when let's say they're going and they're learning something, It also it, it's very important to go and, and spend a lot of time, the things that you enjoy learning. The things that you enjoy learning, you connect to it much more, especially for the beginners. That's how you should go and you should connect to it. So the simple answer is try at least one of the many answers that we could give is try to focus on something and focus fully on it to connect to it. Um, I thought you said that up to that point they were believing in Moshe because of the miracles. And then you said that they will do whatever Hashem says because they totally believed in Moshe. What changed their minds? Did I miss something? So, okay, so in, in the beginning, so yes, I, I think there's a little bit on clarity in that, uh, you know, that, uh, for, the, for the person who asked that question. In the beginning, the Jewish people said, when, when Moshe Rabbeinu said and said, here's the information, they said, asset. Then what, what they said, na'aset, too, was to the commandments. What changed their, their mind wasn't, wasn't in the commandments. They always wanted to go and accept the commandments. But what happened over here differently is that Moshe Rabbeinu, uh, learning to, the uh, next question is learning Torah can be hard to feel connected. How can you feel better? How can you better yourself even if you love your God? So I don't follow that, uh, that question. But where I, maybe I feel like maybe this question is coming from is when you're going and you're becoming closer to God and when you're becoming more religious and you're becoming and you're learning Torah, it's, very, very important that every single time that you learn something, you take something out of that and you implement that in your life. Like, for example, so for today's class that we spoke about, a very easy thing to implement is making things real for you. Making things connect to things more than you could have and you maybe you did connect uh, previously to. But whatever you learn, even if you learn things about the PowerShell, maybe you learn about Moshe Rabbeinu, so now you're going to say, you know what, I'm going to work on humility. Everything that you do, the goal is, the Vilna Gohan says, that we have to fix our midot, we have to fix our character traits. So when you're going and when you're dealing with something you have to go and take that extract that information and implement it into your li- into your life every single person that's a, a a Jew or even if it doesn't really matter when you're doing something you have to implement it so a religious Jew should become a better person as time goes by. A religious Jew should be a better spouse as time goes by. Should be a better husband as time goes by. They're learning and they're growing and they're implementing and they're innovating and saying, you know what, let me fix myself over here, let me fix myself over here. Life is always about fixing yourself and growing as a person. Okay, seems like that is the final question. So, hazakabu for everybody, all the organizations that uh, join with us and all the people that join with us. And b'zlat Hashem until uh, next week.